Welcome back, everyone. This is Eric Ellison with the Digital Education Podcast, where I have conversations with friends, educators, innovators, and just people who are thinking about school, learning, and just how we do it better, different, um, and, and just more. I, I think one of the things I'm interested in more recently is how do we do it more humanly? Um, and so I'm with friend. I'm with someone I've 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 had a conversation with before, but last time he was in England and now he's in Australia. But I'm with Dr. Rob Lowe, who is um, senior fellow at Chartered College of Teaching, the Relationships Foundation, where he is founder of Relational Schools. And then now in his transition, which he did right in right kind of at the beginning of, of the shutdown and pandemic in Australia. He is now executive officer at Christian Schools Australia, where he leads and works with principals and then has a national portfolio for research. And, and the thing I love about Rob is he's fun to talk to. But Rob, I think that the thing that I love is I love learning from you and learning with you. And mm. so as you dig deep, maybe one thing, because you made a crazy transition. You were in lockdown in England. And then you made the journey all the way to Australia where you thought you were going to get some freedom, but it didn't happen. Give us a little bit of personal reflection on, on this journey of two years almost now. When Mm. you think about your transition from England to Australia, but then lockdown and what you are just even learning and processing in these days. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Um, and, um, and, and of course, talking, um, you know, virtually, as we so often do now as human beings, this is, this is it now, right? I even did a, I even led a, a leadership meeting for a school that's only like sort of 20 minutes drive away. And they all met physically this week, but they asked me to join via Zoom, um, which of course I did. Um, so yes, um, we did speak virtually last time when I was in England. At the time, I think I was probably locked down. We we'd locked down from early March in the UK, and we probably spent about 60, 60 more than 60 days locked down. And we left on June the 22nd. It was a very, very difficult period to leave. Um, we had families come and see us, but they weren't allowed indoors. They couldn't be inside the house. So we said goodbye to all our family outdoors. We hugged at the gate. Um, and left on the 23rd, and pretty hopeful and optimistic. It had been very difficult lockdown in the UK. Um, by the time, um, yeah, we'd left, there were there were reported to be up tens of thousands of cases a day, and 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 people dying at an astonishing rate. And so there was all sorts of degrees of optimism about moving to Australia, where cases were low or non-existent in many states. But we arrived, and. Um, did two weeks of hotel quarantine, which with children of 10 and 12 was challenging. Um, and yet you, you do these things. But it was on leaving hotel quarantine on 7th of July um, in the cab on the way to our new rental home that um, the Premier of Victoria announced um, that Victoria's locking down. Um, and it was distressing for my family, particularly for my wife, when watching her cry for the entire journey um, um, on the way home was extremely difficult because I didn't know what to say. Um, because we arrived in a home where we had no possessions, we just had air beds um, and a few pots and pans, and that was the case for a further three months. Um, and we were locked down. Well, we ended up being locked down. We only were released from lockdown um, recently in the last few weeks, and we ended up doing 334 days. So about 11 months, the last 18 have been indoors, disconnected from other 
from other people and communities. And it has been extraordinarily challenging. Um, I mean, to say that, you know, Melbourne is statistically the most locked down uh, place in the world. And, and we as a family probably have the dubious honor of being the most locked down family internationally. And, and that's no exaggeration. Yeah. So, so one of the things, that, and I'm, I'm glad you share that, and thank you for sharing that, because number one, it got to be fairly traumatic in certain ways, not yeah. easy in other ways, maybe sweet discoveries along the way and some positive ways, but you do a ton of research on relationships, relationships in schools, you know, kind of the, in, in mm. conversations that we've had before, like, what was it like living this out, knowing the research that you know? Oh, uh, do you know what? That's a really astute question because it it is the most difficult thing, particularly watching, for me personally, watching myself unravel physically. I mean, like, we, we know all this stuff about the impact um, of that the good relationships can have on our physiology. Um, in fact, we've known more about that the last 20 years than we've ever done. Um, and so we know, for example, that dementia rates in the over 50s, particularly men, much lower if they have a really tight community who they, whom they engage with regularly. Um, we know from a study of utility workers in, in mainland Europe, you, you could predict who was going to be alive at the end of a decade based on who was in relationship at the beginning of it. We know that um, our relationships turn on and off our gene responses to certain cancers you know, not whether we get them or not, but how well we respond to treatment. And so I have seen myself, I have been more unwell physically in the last 12 months than I have ever been across a year and probably spent more time in the doctors. Um, and I know why, and I know what the antidote was, and I couldn't, I couldn't take it. Um, and it certainly wasn't one of the contested va vaccines on offer. Um, that social contact connection, which was being denied and um, was doing things, difficult things to me physically and my family mentally. And to know it and to live it was extraordinarily challenging. Yeah. Uh, thank you again for sharing that, because because it is that interesting place that as you kind of do this work and as you know this. And, and I think one of the really interesting the things that I'm really wondering, right, because I. I'm living it too in Northern California where we're still fairly tight. We're not yeah. as tight as you, but things are fairly tight. Um, and I've traveled quite a bit in particular around the United States. I've been in 10 States in 30 days and I've seen just the disparity on how communities have dealt with this. Mm. And then I've been in about 20 different schools in the last two months. And so I'm watching like the interaction and the interplay in schools. If you're talking to a school leader and based on your own personal experience and based on what you're watching with your own kids, but then the research and what you're leading, like what would be your encouragement to school leaders as we enter this phase and this reality of not a new normal, but almost a next normal? Because we're coming out of something and it's not like we're ever going to return to where we were before. Yeah, right. So, um, well, perhaps the greatest driver of stress um, um, and I think I think we need to be careful about the language we use and particularly and um, perhaps around the use of mental wellness or well-being well-being perhaps 
one of the most overused phrases now to the point where it's losing its potency, I sense. I mean, I think we need to be careful that we don't mis- misappropriate a term such that we we start to believe that there is almost an inherent right to experience comfort continuously versus um, our understanding of the benefits um, on human beings to their, you know, in terms of their flourishing by being in a connected community and that, and they're different things. But I think that part of the greatest, you know, the greatest driver of stress I sense at this time comes from insecurity and it's, and it's felt almost universally. Um, there's a famous psychologist based here, Andrew Fuller, who was interviewed recently on this very topic. And he works with, you know, a, a bunch of schools and communities in Australia and internationally. And he specializes in well-being of young people and their families. And he argued really powerfully that, that socially we're kind of undergoing a, a corporate or communal um, rites of passage experience. And I think we're all familiar with this idea of, of a rite of passage. It was made um, popular by the um, ethnographer Arnold van Gennep, but it has its origins, of course, in the, in the literature of Homer. Um, and in cultural anthropology, it's kind of understood as a, a significant change in status. And we can use that term and apply it to human development and physical growth. We can apply it to professional growth and maturation, or in the context of Christianity, we can think about it in terms of baptism and and regeneration. Um, But when referring to physical or or psychological development, um, these rites of passage occur specifically during adolescence. And I have one child who's going through that at the moment, and you you can see her wrestling with that at this time, which is really, really fascinating, particularly her interactions with her own peer group. And by their very nature, whether we're going through them professionally um, or sociologically speaking or physically speaking, they are always unsettling. And what Fuller argued was is that we're all going through a kind of collective rites of passage at the moment. Um, We kind of don't know where where we were. Um, We certainly don't know where we are and we definitely don't know where we are going to be. We're in this kind of liminal space um, and in and and you know and and it comes with it um, a set of sort of symptoms, some pathologies that we're noticing in young people. So you know, in particular, and Fuller again spoke to this because he sees people professionally um, on his on in his in his couches on his couch, as it were. And he said, you see, young people's um, anxiety really changing. This is not the same anxiety that they were experiencing before the pandemic. What, they're, what he's seeing now is, is a great degree of helplessness. You know, I, ca- I can't do this. Um, and hopelessness, you know, and I've no, I can't do it. And I've no way of knowing when I will be able to do it. Um, and I think what one has to do, therefore, is, and what we've tried to do as parents is and I think this is what adults need to be is the is the antidote to that the vaccination to that and that is therefore to be as hopeful as we possibly can and to remind young people of a greater hope and to fix our eyes on something that is tangible and stable and to be as helpful as possible 
And practically speaking, that means that there is no problem with my kids that's too small. And I've had to be very, very careful as we live in this same space that when they come to me with the tiny little things, that nothing is too big. Um, I give them time whenever they need it. Um, and that's not to overindulge them. Um, that is just to be very present and consistent and calm and continually to be hopeful. And the other thing to say about this is, is that, you know, it's really important to know that going through st stressful periods is, is a good thing. And we shouldn't avoid stress, you know, and there's a, there's a real danger that our current climate would encourage us to avoid stress. And everything within the natural world tells us, and we should take our cues in the natural world, because God created a, a world that is ordered and knowable. That's why our universities were created such that we could engage with it, thinking God's thoughts after him, as Kepler put it. Um, and what we observe in the natural world, for example, even within trees, and I'm really fascinated by this, is that trees need to be placed under high stress and when they're not they don't grow and they will probably fall over in fact in your fair country there was this fantastic experiment done in the 90s you may know it of the biodome it was this kind of artificially controlled environment on on the on the surface of mars that they were going to create and they wanted to see whether if you could control everything air water mineral qualities of the soils, whether you could create and sustain life locked away, whether you could be locked down without the natural world around you to help you. And of course, this thing in modern terms cost billions of dollars and it was a complete failure because the trees kept falling over. You know, the thing that was going to sustain life um, failed them. And the one thing that they had not planned for was the need for storms for inclement weather, um, for stress. And what we know now, of course, is that when you put trees under enormous stress, they even develop a different type of bark, a stress wood, they call it. And they put their roots deeper and harder um, into the ground and into each other. And so, you know, I keep reminding kids and others, my colleagues, you know, we learn our lessons about this from the Psalms. Psalm 1 says, um, blessed, or in the you know, or in or in the Greek, you know, happy, of good well-being. Well is the one who does two things: places themselves in a company of really enriching relationships. So they don't, by contrast, sit in the company of mockers. They don't. They don't. They don't place themselves alongside people who are going to bring them down. They put themselves along people who are going to build them up, and people who lean into the word. And so, you know, that's why the greatest command of the Bible is to love your neighbor and to love the Lord your God, because as it turns out, we know physiologically, psychologically, sociologically, when you lean into God and you lean into each other, you grow. It's a crucible effect. We, we, we grow stronger. And I think the greatest encouragement of my time is actually the way my kids have matured. Just going back to that metaphor of rite of passage, the way they've matured spiritually speaking i see them praying differently and not because i've taught them to pray differently not because i've taught them new words to pray but just because i see them yeah i just see them engaging with god differently and and that is an enormous encouragement anyway all that to say oh I'm, i've probably rambled and i beg your pardon 
no, no beg your pardon, because it's incredible. I mean, so many things that you could dig deep into it. And, and people who've listened to this podcast know that one of the things that I love talking about or even writing about it, are the redwood trees here in California, mm. because they grow very shallow roots, but they intertwine their roots with each other. Mm. And then they share water across root systems and they actually communicate and hold each other up. There's some great, you know, great research. on totally. it. So I love redwood trees. I love trees. I love, you know, I know the biodome and I know what you're talking about there. I think one of the questions I'm wondering is you talk about the importance of being with people, right? Mm. And, and how that builds you up and how that connects you and how that grows you and how that you know, you know, buffers you and all these things that you're talking about, about creating hope and, and helpfulness. And, mm. you know, you do that in community, you do that in relationship. Yes. And people are really struggling, especially students, but adults, even particular of re-engaging in relationships, yeah, right. in community, in schools in particular, our work, our professions are, yep. are places of relationship and community. Yep. How do we get back or what are the things that we got to start getting over? Or what are the things that we got to start working through? Or how do we invite people into new spaces or new ways of being? I mean, how have you thought about that? Because I, I think that's, you know, we're seeing it with whether it be school, whether it be church, you know, or just even in life, you know, the, the whole yes. opt out sort of idea now that that is new even for us in our society and our culture. Yes. Um, well, first of all, I think that, um, that there's two sides to that coin. The first is what, we, what we've learned during this period about um, the antecedents of some of the bad stuff. Um, and I think that one of the most interesting mass social experiments we've just gone through is, is whether we could largely provide education digitally, virtually, online. And I think the answer to that is no. And that's not to denigrate or downplay the importance of technology in education um, or in the delivery of learning and particularly flipped learning. You know, one would not want to downplay the significance of those of those movements and that research. However, it is true to say, um, and I think, again, you know, if you look at the work coming out of America, particularly, I, you know, work by those like Gene Twenge, who I'm a huge fan of. You know, what Twenge shows is that, Again, if we look at this, you know, if we think about our significant concerns around young people's mental health and well-being and where we start to see um, a real shift, a cultural shift in young people from being um, largely stable as a, as a population to suddenly the presentation of significant mental health challenges in, in mass groups. That happens about a decade ago, and it happens because what we see is young people for the first time, in, in large part, not talking to each other face to face. You know, we, we, and we, we cannot overplay the impact that smart, smartphones and devices had on our inability to connect. And I think that played out is an important point because what, what, young people have tried to do during this lockdown period is connect with their friends virtually, but they have still felt lonely. 
And so with all those countries who were really interested in this, in this loneliness phenomenon, I mean, I personally don't think young people are lonely. I think it's the wrong word. Um, I think it's a very different phenomenon that we see in the elderly who are physically isolated and separated and often digitally separated as well versus young people who think they're connected to hundreds of people and in reality are completely um, um, yeah, fractured from known face-to-face interaction um, and, and therefore spend much of their day talking to each other but saying nothing. You know, they don't really connect. So the flip side of that is, well, well, how much does one need? And I think there's some really important studies that show us that it doesn't take much to get to, to see the benefits. So there's this really, oh, there's this fantastic example of a study um, done um, in, in the UK with um, in a library. It was a research project done in a library. Um, it was done by a bunch of communication theorists. And, uh, you know, and they were particularly interested on the, on, on the impact of what they might call presence, you know, physical, intellectual, emotional, spiritual presence and how it's mediated across gaps and filtered in such a way that we can communicate effectively. Um, and so, for example, there was a study done in libraries on the importance of touch. Um, and I think that's relevant in the context of social distancing. And I think it illustrates how we're unaware of the of the bandwidth we we use in communicating and so poor in managing um, its reduction. So in this experiment I referenced, librarians were instructed alternatively to touch and not touch the hands of students as they handed back um, their library cards. And then the students were interviewed afterwards and those who had been touched reported far greater positive feelings about themselves um, the librarians um, and the library itself and those who've not been touched. And this occurred even though the touch itself, and it wasn't, it wasn't like a handhold, it, um, it, it wasn't a significant moment, it was fleeting. And universally, the students didn't even remember um, feeling that touch. Um, but it's a reminder that our decisions to trust, for example, they're rapid, they're unconscious, they're drawn on sources we often forget. Um, and the default settings of schools at the moment potentially limit some of those moments. We've, we're nervous about physical contact. But what it shows us as well, how little one needs. So there's, there's a danger, we think, that unless we're regularly shaking hands with people, unless we're giving an opportunity to hug each other, then, then we'll never feel the benefits we used to. But I strongly suspect that just being... In the, in, in the presence of another person has the most important and perhaps unquantified benefits um, that we're only just starting to, to really understand. And the more we get back to that and the more we start putting pressure on ourselves to create these moments of perfect relational connection, I think the more likely we are to see the incremental benefits of just being together regularly. Because that's more than just the benefits across, you know, the model that Relationships Foundation talks about, relational proximity or the closeness of relationships being determined by the degree to which you regularly face-to-face engage, but also the degree to which you do that over time. The Cambridge professor Robert Hind defined relationships as a series of interactions, 
such that each interaction built on past interactions and enabled us to anticipate and long for and yearn interactions in the future. I'm going to meet a mate for lunch in about 45 minutes. And just periodically in my head, I'm looking forward to it. I haven't done much of it, and I'm really holding on to it today. It's something that I am yearning for today. Just the anticipation of that moment, let alone the activity itself, is good for me. And the more we want it and anticipate it, the more we think back to the times where we had it, we bring that continuity of, of, um, of, of storyline. And so, um, you know, the third area, that of the multiplexity of the relationship, the many strands of it, we need to provide different contexts for young people and adults to be in relationship. So I saw this particular guy is a minister at our church. I saw him last night at church meeting. I meet him for coffee at lunch in another location. We went to his house with his wife and children um, a couple of weeks back as well. And because we know each other in those different contexts, like a rope, it's, we call it the multiplex because it's the strands, the many strands, and like a rope, the more context you see people in, the more you break that up and vary it, like a rope, the more robust it comes, uh, it becomes. And it's, it's the place and the context where, where trust and alignment of value is, is created. So all that to say, we know the difficulties, but we definitely know the benefits. And it doesn't take much incrementally to really bring those back. So teachers don't need to beat themselves up, but they definitely need to be intentional about the moments. Uh, it's so good. So good. Because there's so many things that come to my mind about my own experience. But then so much of what you're talking about is, is I'm seeing play out, right? You know, in new ways. Let, let me ask this question, because I know it's, it's a growing area of interest for you. And you, you mentioned this before we got on was in, in this in relationship and in trust and in all those types of things is, is really kind of um, formation, right? Mm. And around, yes. you know, whether, you know, and, and I'll let you take it a little bit more, but, you know, I'm really interested because you'd mentioned before we jumped on just kind of this, this idea and this interest of formation, you know, um, ethical formation, we're watching our countries and, and character mm-hmm. and all these types of things. And, and, and I think, you know, you've got this, this idea of like, hey, relationship, these strands, it, it, it comes through trust and, and, you know, continuous opportunities or multiple opportunities to get to know each other in multiple settings. Yeah. What, what are you wondering about? Because I know this is at the heart of, for a lot of a lot of educators and a lot of people in general is a worry about who um, these kids are going to be. Right. And yeah. I think we, we also have to look at who we are, too. Right. Yeah. But I think as educators, sure. we often look at you know, who these kids are going to become and how we're going to do that as we, you know, as we do formation. And I had a call earlier today where we spent about 40 minutes talking about formation and Mm. our concerns about that. And so I'm wondering if you could just dig into a little bit of what you're wondering or what you're discovering as you think about formation of, Mm. of character and ethics and, you know, and, and of just these kids that we do in school. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, so I, I think my interest in this has stemmed from sort of multiple sources. Part of it is that I've always been interested in the longitudinal outcomes of young people as a, as a better measure for, for school 
for school success and impact. I mean, if you talk to any psychologist and you were to ask any psychologist and they can all write in if they disagree, having listened to this, but you ask any psychologist I've asked about when it might be best to summatively assess a student and when might a student reach something of a kind of intellectual sweet spot, a point where they have matured, where they've, again, speaking of this kind of right to passage language, where they're passing from adolescence into early adulthood, you know, when is that moment? And I don't think anyone would tell you that 16 to 18, which is a common international pattern for when we decide that students ought to, we ought to, you know, judge them and 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 pr- pr- provide a real barrier to next entry, that that would be the ideal moment. In fact, most I speak to say that somewhere between 22 and 25 is the optimal moment to understand how well a young person is doing. It's why young people often return to study later. It's why boys in particular, um, who, who we know mature differently and later, often find their academic legs um, after, after girls have. Um, and so I've always been interested in thinking about our relationship with alumni, relationship with those who leave our schools and go on and what becomes of them, because I think that's a much better marker um, of, of, of a school's impact and the work it's done. And you can pick a tree metaphor, there is that, you know, if you think about any kind of good fruit tree, particularly apple trees, you know, good feature of the Bible, um, you know, an apple tree, when it's first planted, might not yield any fruit for about seven years. Um, you know, it, 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 it is only when you go well into the distance that you start to see um, the yield of that particular tree and all the resultant fruit that comes from it, whether it be jams or pies or ciders, you know, they come as a result of a real combined effort and long into the future. And I think we need to think about our young people like that. But I think also schools are really fascinated by and interested in the types of young people that go into the world and the people they are, um, and particularly the people they are when they're not in the company of adults. Um, and, you know, that's as much about self-regulation and agency. And, um, and it takes us into the field of virtue ethics. And, and particularly there's something I'm really interested in, which is moral psychology, because we do a lot of work at Christian Schools Australia around the issue of formation. Um, and from my own research background in relationships, I've always been fascinated about whether you can focus on the technocratic elements. So we can focus on the things that we've just described and talk about you know, a model for relationships. And you can think about it in a, in a psychologically you know, robust way. You can think about what we call the ABC model. You can think about the effective behavioral and cognitive um, benefits of doing certain things when in relationship to strengthen and closen a connection between two people, you can do that. And you can think about environment around young people in particular and provide optimal conditions for relationship growth. But I'm also interested in the inner workings. And I'm interested in, you know, the encouragement of the Bible that we should not conform to the world, but we should be transformed internally, inside out. And I'm and I'm increasingly fascinated and challenged and stimulated by the degree to which we can do this by ourselves. Now, it is true to say that there is a bunch of stuff within moral psychology that demonstrates that if you do teach people, um, for example, you know, if you do teach people about the importance of 
empathy or perspective taking, if you encourage them not just to sympathise with somebody, which is to see their situation and, and feel sad because of it, but to live the world with them, to step into their shoes, then you can actually nudge and change people's behaviours. And there's loads of psychological experiments that demonstrate that people become more generous, more kind, more warm um, as a consequence of being exposed to different perspectives of the world. But by the same token, I have to, you know, you know, I speak from a context of working with schools, um, with, with Christian schools, and I am interested in the degree to which that formation um, is not something we control ourselves, um, but is genuinely driven by a different fuel. Um, and I sense that um, over the next 12 to 18 months, that's going to be really rich research food for me. Yeah. So maybe one last question or, you know, kind of as we, we close up, because it's a, it, it, I, you twisted it on me a little bit there, right? I, it gave me a little bit of surprise, right? We talk about relationships and the importance of relationships and, you know, the connectivity that it creates and the health that it creates. But then you, you kind of going into kind of this new, you know, this area that you're discovering and you talk about it, you know, what, what we can do in a sense by ourselves, to ourselves, mm. with ourselves, like help me understand a little bit more deeply of what you're thinking about or what you're learning or discovering or what you're mm. digging at when it comes to personal, like individual transformation and the yeah. work that we can do. Yeah. Know? So I, yeah. So, um, you know, as I said, I've always, I was most confronted by um, the command of the Bible that on all the law and the prophet hangs to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And I was, I was really struck one day when I also noticed that Jesus spoke of this as a new command, a new command I give you. And I was really confronted by that because, because it wasn't a new command. Because to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor was spoken about on multiple occasions before Jesus used that particular phrase. But the addition there, what is new about it, is that he says that we should love others as I have loved you. Um, and it speaks of a degree of love of other, an engagement with the world, which is both surprising and impossible to achieve. We, we could never love our neighbor in the way that Christ um, has loved us. And therefore, I was most struck by the order and hierarchy of, of, of that new command, because I don't believe we can, this is my personal sense of it, I think we can love our neighbor until we know what it is to be in relationship with the creator. And I think we often try, and as I said, focus on the technocratic at the expense of our knowledge and understanding of where the genuine power for that comes from and our ability. And what we see in the world, which is so um, fractured um, and, um, yeah, and wounded, is our inability to see and relate with others, with different perspectives, different views of the world. Um, and I think we can only really put ourselves in their shoes to understand them, to walk with them better 
if we are if we are driven by a different a different imperative um and unless we've really been encouraged to see our neighbor differently and treat them differently now all that to say we can we we do know that we can psychologically speaking when we work on this stuff we do grow i mean there's this nt wright uses this fantastic example of of london cab drivers you know who's who who are who are renowned for their knowledge and understanding of the streets of london in fact it is called the test they have to pass is referred to as the knowledge definite article beyond which there is no no other thing that worth is worth knowing and so if you ask them i need to get from here to here london cab drivers can get you and what they showed having studied their brains was that their hippocampus itself had grown it was different to other human beings they had trained their brains like we train other muscles, like athletes train. So I do sense that also that when we, and this is another word that N.T. Wright uses, he talks about the the liturgies of of organisations, the liturgies of our daily lives, which is a churchy word to say the routines we go through. We can, when we lean into God's word every day, um, when we pray for that transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit, such that we could see our neighbour differently. Um, when we start to engage in that act intentionally, um, my own testimony is that I, I have felt that internal transformation, which I hope my friends and colleagues would say led to a difference in the way that I engage with the world outside, that I am not the I'm not a relational human being. Everyone thinks that Rob Lowe is the relationships guy, and I hope people think of me as warm and friendly and engage with the world well. But I don't think I do that in my own strength. And I don't think that I've always been good at it either. I think that it's been work in progress. And I'm interested in the environment, the, the processes that you place around people. In schools context, I'm interested in the pedagogies, you know, the, the, the methodology of how a teacher most effectively connects with a young person. But I'm also interested. Um, in in that internal potential for growth, and which I think, as I said, um, dip comes from a different fuel cell. Holy smokes! I think I could go on and on, but you've got a lunch to get to, and people mm-hmm. listen. It'll give me way more to ask you next time we do this. But I'm wondering maybe one last piece of advice because you work with principals, mm. school leaders. Who, who are trying to just manage a system right now through this pandemic. They're trying to accomplish great things amidst the changes. What would be an encouragement? I have a lot of friends that listen, you know, who are school leaders or just educators. What would be that one maybe piece of encouragement that you could leave with us to that school leader or to that educator that says, hey, you know what, if we're looking at you, your transformation, some of what you just talked about there. Yes. What what might be a piece of advice or just a mm. piece of encouragement that you'd give them that we could leave today on? Um, I think it comes down to the heart of what leadership really is. So Walt C. Wright says that the leadership is is any moment where we seek to influence the the behaviors and attitudes of others. And the minute you've tried to do that, the minute you've the minute, the minute you've spoken in somebody else's life in order to make them think differently about something, the minute you 
engage or um, operate in a space where you are telling others what you think and want them to think differently as a consequence, you are by definition leading them. And that's really important because what that shows is ultimately that we are all leaders at, at all times. And the Bible has some stark warning about leadership and, and, and taking on leadership. And the danger is, first of all, we see it as something that somebody else does. And as a principle listening to this, that is true. You are at the top of the food chain and it is a lonely thing. So my first encouragement would be that you have to, you have to make sure that that known community around you, that, that, that accountability and that support structure around you is really solid. Ministers do this. Most ministers will tell you, most successful ministers, that they have three or four people that they meet with regularly and that they hold each other accountable, they pray for each other and they, they walk with each other really closely to make sure they're doing okay. Our school leaders, I'm not sure that some of them pay enough attention to in ensuring that someone is, is, is encouraging them to do that, to make sure that they're going well, to have that group around them. But secondly, the great encouragement, therefore, is to engage the world as Jesus did, which is, which is one relationship at a time. You know, you know, you can do no more. The danger is that you look at a massive organisation and say, well, where do I start? Um, and there is definitely a view as to how many people you can be in relationship with. Um, the, the, the writer and thinker, the Agricunas, spoke of um, what he called span of control, that leaders are unlikely to be able to influence more than eight people at a time. And, and of course, most of the, the great organisations and structures, um, particularly military ones throughout history, have always broken down most units to 10, between 8 and 10, even the Roman army, which obviously broke down into 110 lots of 10. Even within that 10, they had eight soldiers, two slaves, one servant. And so we know that there is a so first of all, don't try and have a relationship with too many people. Don't, don't fall into the game of social networking, which, which always seems to be won by the number of people we're connected to, um, like LinkedIn or Twitter. We count our successes um, in the thousands, but we have to think of it not as social capital, in social capital terms, but relational capital terms, i.e. the collective value of all the relationships you do have. Keep them small keep them tight, keep it regular, um, but don't beat yourself up. Remember, one relationship at a time. That's all you can do. That's what Jesus did. Um, and, it, and, and he transformed the lives of millions of people as a consequence of that behavior. Um, it's well worth looking on. Rob, I, I think so incredible. I always love talking with you and there's always space. And that's one of the things I love for more in future conversation. So Rob, as you continue to the transition to Australia, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank, nice. Lovely to be with you.